This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number 41. Uh, and with me, uh, Varun Mater in New Delhi. Hi. Hi, John. Uh, Omar Khan in Sri Lanka. Hello, Omar. Hey there. Uh, Hiroyuki Hamada uh, in Long Island, New York. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Uh, Johan Edebo in Sweden. Hi. Hey, man. Um, and I am in Norway, and I think we will be joined um, by Corey Morningstar uh, before this uh, recording is done. I hope so. Um, I wanted to start with Varun, who, who hasn't done these podcasts before and and who um i was very happy to um have come on and um and i wanted just to start with him uh and and um get his perspective and a little bit about the situation in india okay um so i'll just go by what i've heard from friends and people where i live which has been very interesting to notice. Um, at the end of last year, the markets were bustling where I am. Um, people were largely outside, um, <clears throat> even though they were wearing masks and taking the necessary precautions and all that. But um, this last month has been something very similar to what happened last year in March in India, which was then suddenly there was a new crisis. Suddenly there was, there were people dying and being hospitalized at an incredible rate. And that was very present. And I'll go into some details about this because it's very interesting. Uh, I asked around, I mean, I know families that if I had, a five-member family that has had three people pass away. Friends who have, uh, who have told me that 11, they had to go for 11 cremations in five days. And so there is this kind of a flood of news from all around me all the time. It's just, at, I mean, at that time it was like this and now it's cooled down a bit. It's not as hectic anymore and so what I decided to do was to visit in that week where it was being reported, this, this spike was being reported, I decided to get out with a friend in a car and go and take a look around, at least in our nearby uh, five square odd kilometer radius, which has three very big and well-known hospitals, as well as a cremation ground and a burial ground. And funnily enough, the hospitals did not have hospital ambulances lined up outside and the one cremation ground and the burial ground we saw was not overcrowded and this is just two days after the biggest spike was reported in the media right and so but you're also continuously hearing about people's personal stories so this doesn't it makes no sense right and it, it was just it was really that was the height for me personally of not understanding what the hell is going on. But then uh, a couple of, couple of weeks later, 
a friend of mine was invited, and I'm not going to take any names here, but a friend of mine was invited to go to a hospital across the river to do a photo story about um, medicines being stopped in a hospital, university hospital. When he went there, he was told that they had not seen a single patient in the last month and a half. And this is just last week, right? Like, so he was told that they, he, the hospital had not seen a patient, so they had to close down one of the wards. And he was able to take some pictures of all the stock rooms, which were basically full to the brim. When he asked if he could do an interview with one of the staff members, he was clearly told that they would need permission from the Indian Council of Medical Research before they could get on and the same university hospital a couple of days later was in the news said basically the, the picture that was being portrayed was that they were actually making a new ward from funding to accommodate extra patients and so this this kind of a I mean, there, there is, I think what is happening is that there is a very definite streamlining of where people are allowed to go so that it feels like it's out of hand completely. That's what I feel like. It feels like that. So today on the way back, so we, we, we've started filming at the farmers' protests, um, but today on the way back, we could, we had the opportunity to stop at one of the biggest cremation sites in, in the city which is also one of the oldest and is probably the most well-known. The name is Nigambodh Ghat, which is on the river Yamuna. I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to already be there because I was part of uh, another film crew and I made friends with a boatman um, and I had called him during this spike that was being reported internationally and he had told me that it is morbid that there are there is no space for people to burn their dead and today we stopped by again and we visited him and had a half an hour chat with him by the river to ask what's going on like what has been going on in the last month and he said that there were there was this two and a half odd period which is inexplainable like he cannot explain how much sadness and grief they were surrounded by and basically it was just those two and a half weeks and now everything is quote unquote back to normal so yeah that's that's been um on the run and incidentally there's one more thing that i'll just quickly add which was that, yeah please um where i live this residential area i tend to talk to a lot of the guards and the drivers and the shopkeepers and things like this so i get kind of other kind of information which is not on the on the news um i asked multiple people and they told me that people in in the houses that they work at had died and then i asked them whether they had been given the shots and all of them said yes and then i asked when and they said in the last few months basically starting end of Jan, I think. Yeah, so that is something which is, I think, very painful to watch happen around you because 
I mean, there has been a very considerable effort uh, from a group of people in India to warn people about all of this that's going on. But um, that's just, yeah, it's just. Uh, no, it's <clears throat> um, no, it's really fascinating. And, and there's several God, there's several things to 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 talk about here. One, I had an experience not dissimilar um, when uh, I, I was organizing some of these these radio plays um, that we did here on on aesthetic resistance this is a few months ago. Um, and I was talking to an actor and it was very hard to get actors to do anything in person. You had to record things on Zoom because everybody was terrified and staying at home. And I talked to this one guy who I've known for a very long time and respect enormously. Um, a terrific actor. And um, I kind of tiptoed around the subject of um, the virus and maybe, you know, we shouldn't be so paranoid and I'm sure we could take precautions and, and, and record it in a safe way or something. He's no, no, no. I sit at home and listen to the sirens every night of the ambulances going to the hospital. Now I know where he lives and um, uh, so I checked. I know the hospital. There's only one hospital it could be. And I checked um, the, the figures for that hospital, the, the number of deaths, the number of hospitalizations due to COVID. It was nothing. It was not out of the ordinary. So I don't think he's lying, you know, I, but I think this is part of, of, a, of a complex of phenomena that kind of overlap and, and interconnect. Um, that that is hard to explain but it's but it's but it's projection and and uh, uh you know almost hallucination people are attached to a kind of a narrative and 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 it's you know it's a hollywood movie in their mind and and um it, it kind of unreals in that way and um, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a satisfactory explanation, actually, because, as I say, this guy's a smart guy. I know him. I've known him for years. Um, he's not a lunatic and he's he's not a fantasist. And yet um, he told me this lurid anecdote that, in fact, couldn't have possibly been true. So, um, the, you know, this is this is part of the the strangeness of this last year and a half i think um anyway okay um As, uh, if i could just add one more please thing. yeah 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 is that, is that um the medical establishment in india has switched what is the protocol continuously over the last few months right so i mean we know that ivermectin was stopped close to the end of last year and steroids had been introduced and now what has happened in the last uh, couple of months i think or few months is that there has been something new called the black fungus and now the medical establishment is making statements saying that it's prolonged mask wearing and it's overuse of oxygen cold oxygen and it's overuse of steroids so you see, like it, that, I mean, they've made these official statements, like these are official statements. And this is staggering for me that, that you could switch roles that quickly mm. when right. so many people mm. have been ill because of the treatments and they have died. It's just absolutely mind blowing for me that people will still follow the, follow the narrative that is being peddled 
whether it's the establishment or the medical establishment at large, that people can still follow. But like you rightly said, man, like that it is also to a large degree hallucinatory in in um, as an experience because this is something that I like to talk about a lot, which is the collective imagination. And once that has been tapped into, it is very easy to induce, induce high levels of stress and fear, which then put the body into a very certain state. And if you're yeah. surrounded by it, and if you're getting all this kind of fucking news all the time, then that has the capacity of putting people into a really bad state of panic and breathlessness and all of that. And then they get admitted into hospitals and then you get into wrong protocols and shit like that happens, right? Like, so it's yeah, just, I, uh, but yeah. I think it's absolutely true. I think it's a really perceptive um, and articulate way to put it. I, it, it. It is part of this, this fabric of, um, you know, madness. We've talked about it on here, this kind of collective madness. And, and I wrote a blog post about hysteria and um, past, you know, collective, uh, um, hysterical movements and reactions from groups of people and so forth. But but the extent of this is extraordinary and and the the rapidity with which it all unfolded uh, has still just I find extraordinary and and um, difficult to wrap my mind around, actually, uh, that that, you know, we're here. Um, uh, uh, at, at you know a year and a half and this so much has changed so much has has um, been implemented here in Norway um, I still officially can't drive to Sweden uh, they say they're opening the country but they haven't really done so at all and that raises a whole lot of other questions which which we'll get to anyway Omar yeah yeah so lots sparked by Varun's uh, uh, incisive and really eye-opening, but reconfirming what um, I'd been led to understand by Indian friends. Um, but it, it sparks a few things. Uh, one is, you know, as uh, somebody who thinks of himself originally as a New Yorker, it was fascinating how you remember all the, uh, uh, you know, the, the parks were going to be overrun with corpses and ships had mm -hmm. to be hospital ships that sailed off, never having anyone stepped aboard. Um, there's an immunity to evidence staring at us and the need to manufacture evidence to fit the narrative that's overwhelming. I mean, I wrote about it again recently uh, when the Diamond Price, the Princess cruise ship came in and John Ioannidis did that wonderful analysis saying, hey, we have a case study here. They couldn't leap off the ship. Um, they, were, they were sort of stuck together. And it showed us so many things about lethality being much lower, the age concentration of vulnerability, the airborne nature, all of which was relegated to something that you didn't look at and you just ignored. Um, when hydroxychloroquine was racking up its victories, Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine had fraudulent paper from a group called Surgisphere uh, that rang alarm bells. Uh, it's been retracted. Even WHO concedes it was a fraudulent paper um, by somebody who's got three medical malpractice suits running against him. And if you happen to look 
at that company it would, on its uh, uh, on its uh, list of uh, employees was a science fiction writer and an adult content hostess, both of whom together would make a perfect uh, team to do data analysis. Well, I have uh, to let me just interject that the 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 Norwegian health minister, the guy who makes all the decisions about health here. Um, majored in hospitality management um, well, at right. university. So I, anyway. But hopefully he had somebody backstopping him. These sure. guys did not. So what I'm saying is that there has been this preponderance of, and now people can change the same data without ever explaining how or why. So the lockdown uh, prescription changed all of a sudden, masking changed all of a sudden, and no new science that we're aware of intruded, justifying uh, that movement. Now it's moved the other way, where the CDC is yelling at clinics to only record a case of post-vaccination reinfection if they have symptoms. Right, right, right. So now, I mean, you're through the looking glass completely. Yeah. And I'm um, speaking of Sri Lanka, I'll just say one quick yeah, sentence. Yeah, please. I'm utterly fascinated that on the one hand, you have India where uh, the numbers were certainly, uh, as you say, deadening and saddening, have to be taken against the backdrop of the population. In Sri Lanka, 44 purported deaths today and people were panicking. Huh. 44. And then we read the small print and found those 44 were logged from May 10th to today. Right, right. But they were aggregated into a one-day total that for the local populace seemed terrifying. So essentially, data is being either ignored, manipulated, aggregated, disaggregated, purely for, not for communication, certainly. Manufacturing right. consent, certainly. Well, but but this has been true. I mean, a couple of things. Um, um, the 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 contradictions from the the you know the leading global health organizations, you know, the WHO and CDC, and then all the data tracking um, websites that. Um, compile these statistics and and then rearrange them and um, you know impossible to read graphs and and everything's all very counterintuitive I find but but from the beginning just taking the CDC the CDC would contradict itself from page to page I mean this was from the beginning um, a glaring you know fact and and was pointed to by even you know believers in the in the master narrative as it were, um, but but that was all. Um, but I want to mention something else because this seemed to come up this week, um, and and just as a footnote to what I just said, and we talked about this in the last podcast, why um, all the rules the the official government. Um, press releases and, and statements and um, um, that all the health advisories that, that came from all these different countries all over the world are invariably vague and garbled and imprecise and 
impossible to follow. Uh, certainly the Norwegian one, everybody hears. I said, well, what's the rule? Can we do this or that? I'm not really sure, you know, and it changes from county to county and city to city. And I don't know if, if you're in Trumps, it might be one thing. If you're in Oslo, it's something, I don't know. Um, and they don't seem to mind that they don't know, really. In general, they understand, you know, um, that, that they can't do anything. They can't travel. They can't have parties. They can't do whatever. Um, but something else I wanted to mention, and, and because it came up this week, as I say, and that is the statistics released about Texas, Florida, and Iowa. Mm. Um, the three states which at different times uh, completely lifted all restrictions. No masks, no social distancing, uh, you know, uh, 50,000 people to go watch a basketball game, football game, um, you know, whatever you wanted, you could do it. And the infection rates in all three states have plummeted. Now, one might think, you know, in a rational world that this would be front page news somehow, that um, there would be a massive discussion on the front of the New York Times. You know, the, the, we excoriated these three states and bullied them and yelled at them and called them, you know, um, death merchants. And, and, um, and yet, you know, here, here Texas has, you know, absolutely no infections essentially at this point. But it's not. It's it's not mentioned in media what whatsoever. So, um, uh, it, 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 the the reality of of well, the a, a compromised media. Is, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, man. I'm just saying the media is so. Yeah, compromise. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that that's exactly what I was saying. They just ignore hmm. with total disdain anything, even if it's shrieking at them. Diamond Princess, Iowa. Uh, Florida, Texas, uh, the Swiss doctor who maintains that wonderful website, swprs.org, um, a very sturdy site of data, has just uh, crunched the numbers to show that Sweden has done better than Germany in almost every statistic. Um, and Germany having followed the playbook uh, and Sweden essentially not. And again, these, not to make a, a case or a point, but you would think if you were doing science, there would just be curiosity. I mean, not to say, yay, this is right, or, you know, that's wrong, but to say, perhaps there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies, Horatio. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, uh, Varun's comment about, about the collective imagination is something mm. I think quite important and we should return to, but Johan, yeah. Yeah, I was going to get to that, actually, but um, I was just going to say that the situation in, in Sweden is currently that we have uh, rising infections, uh, yet uh, falling deaths, right. which is also a strange discrepancy. Uh, and it's it's nice to have you uh, here with us, Varun, uh, I, especially since India is so central to the media narrative, uh, at least where I live for the moment. So I have, a, I have really a, quite a lot of questions for you. But uh, just to, to mention something from that, uh, uh, so, so the, the story here in Sweden is that the, the Ganges River is basically clogged with, with COVID dead. Uh, and I, I gather that that's perhaps not really the, the case in reality. Uh, anyway, I, I was just wondering, 
about how does the ownership structure of Indian media look? Do you have any information on this? Um, I'll, I'll, okay, so there are three things that I'd really like to talk about. I'll answer your questions first, and then I'll also mm-hmm. like to address the role of the CDC in India, um, which there was a news story that was that was broken um, last month. Anyway, um, about a decade and a half ago, so roughly 15 years, I was in Varanasi, which is Banaras, and it has one of the oldest fires, funeral fires in the world. And a lot of people go to that place because of the belief that if they do get cremated at that spot, that they can attain moksha or their soul or spirit can attain moksha or enlightenment or whatever, uh, liberation. Um, There is a certain sect of people who work on the banks, which are called the ghats, of all the temples, which are known as domes, D-O-M-S, domes, right? And they are in. They are people who handle the dead, and they are. I think they come from the untouchable community. There are also other rituals where, if I'm not mistaken, pregnant women and children are, by some, uh, some of the peoples in India, are not cremated and they are put in the river. The domes. We have filmed this back then. They had the job of fishing bodies of people from the river to bury them on the banks. And this is something that I've repeated uh, to very few people because it's quite, it's quite a sight to witness this. And it's quite um, overwhelming to understand that people actually have a job to do that. Like it's there. It's based on a certain kind of caste system, but it's that they're responsible for, and you can find enough articles that people have written about these people, you know, like it's all over the internet if you really look for it. Um, So we filmed this and at that time it was about, I think at this ghat, it was about 100 bodies a day, 150 bodies a day, funeral pyres that were being lit a day. And you can imagine that people who don't have the money to buy the firewood, what they would do in this kind of situation. Because the holiest river in the country is right next door. And so the only thing that you do is to give the body to the river in that sense. So I tried getting in touch with a few people in two cities, which was Varanasi and Kanpur, and I was not successful, unfortunately. But from secondhand news, what I've been told is that there is, there has been a slight increase, but it's not as big as it has been portrayed to be, at least in those two and a half weeks of court. Also, um, yeah. Uh, what was the what was the other one, Johan? Sorry. No, it was about the ownership structure of Indian media. If you have any information on that issue. Um, ownership, like so. I mean. Um, Ideologically or financially? Well, uh, more, more, more <laughs> along the lines of if, if it's a widespread ownership of the media or if it's very concentrated in, in a few hands in that kind of sense. So, okay, let's, say, let's, take, let's take the publications, Times of India and Hindustan Times, Indian Express, The Hindu. These are the mainstream English newspapers which are <clears throat> widely circulated. 
um, and very highly compromised. Basically, they're business houses that are being run by very rich people. And I think this is my opinion. I have not traced all the finance back to where it's coming from, but I think um, I did this about eight years ago, I think. Um, there has been a huge investment from private private companies from the US, as far as I remember. And I'm not entirely sure, but um, we must also remember that the entirety of satellite TV in India, which came with liberalization in 1991, was entirely, the programming was entirely white pop culture, American stuff, like all of it. There was nothing else from anywhere in the world at all. And I'll give you an example. This is, I mean, I'm just, I'm just giving you a lived experience. I was called to teach at a university, a film course for one semester. My first question to a class of 40 odd people in that classroom was if they could tell me a single piece of news or a single film from anywhere except for the US or Western Europe. Not a single hand went up, not one. And they had no idea what I was talking about because the cognitive map in that sense is structured in a way where their attention is entirely, entirely on, I don't know, Trump, Britney Spears, The Rock, the Avengers <laughs> series or whatever, you know, like shit like this, man. Is there like anything else, Varun? Sorry? I'm joking. I said, is there anything else, Varun? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean... Yeah, but so, I mean, and I did this, I mean, there were two semesters that I taught, two separate years, and both times it was exactly the same haunting silence from these people who are at this kind of liberal university learning about media and film, you know? Well, you know, I have to interject here because I taught at the, I mean, I've taught film several places, but I taught for um, six, seven years uh, at the Polish National Film School which is a very international school oh. and a prestigious school and so forth. And I had first year students largely. Um, and, but I had the similar experience. I mean, these were people that wanted to be filmmakers, you know, in theory, you would think there would be a curiosity about film, about the history of film, about film from other cultures. And, but there wasn't um, students were by and large, uh, interested in reading technical manuals about cameras, lighting, and anything new um, grabbed their attention. Uh, the rest of it was purely kind of career-driven. And uh, when I started showing them Bresson or, uh, you know, Fassbender or something, um, I was met with almost aggression at a certain point. Now, some of them were won over and became wonderful and, and were terrific students, but, but it was the same experience. It was, it was really kind of shocking. Um, anyway, uh, uh, and I was in Benares uh, 25 years ago um, wow. and was, I think, my favorite city in India. I traveled all over. I was there for a year. Um, but what I remember of Benares was that you would go down to the gots in the morning and they'd be burning bodies um and later in the day the ash was falling on you or everyone. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yeah. There's some, there was something kind of extraordinary about that um and and haunting uh but anyway okay um so can, I, can i just quickly finish there's one please. more thing yes yes, yes 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 
Okay. Um, so the CDC has just been reintroduced into India because they were blacklisted for, apparently blacklisted for carrying out some kind of bio-research in one of the Northeast states. They have just been reintroduced into India as helping India with surveillance of COVID-19. Wow. That's, that's one thing. Um, there's one more thing, which was that uh, I don't own a TV. I don't, so a friend of mine told me that one of the leading English networks for news, which is NDTV, gives over their stream in the evening for an hour to the BBC. So, yeah, basically, huh. that's yeah. how kind of appropriate it is. All of it is that appropriate. Yeah, that's it. No, extraordinary. Um, and and uh, I did want to touch on on uh, the collective imagination because because two things. This is what I keep running into when I talk to people. So maybe Hiroyuki, you can talk about this too, and and Johan Omar. Um, when I talk to people about the things that we're talking about right now, the the um, the, the questionable veracity of global health institutions, the questionable um, veracity of, of Western governments and maybe all global governments, in fact, um, and, and just questions. Uh, if it relates to the media, firstly, this is like the first line of defensiveness, uh, that, that people don't want to talk about or have trouble talking about or ver are very defended when the topic of um, the media comes up. And, and I don't fully grasp why this is, but, but people would say, why? But why would they lie to us? Why would they be lying to me? Why would ABC News or the BBC or, or you know, Canadian Broadcasting Company or any of them, why would they, why would they why would they choose to lie? And it's a question that always kind of stops me because I think, you know, I can answer that for you, but it's going to take several hours. Um, there's not a short answer that that's going to satisfy anybody. So that's a topic, I think. So if anybody has thoughts on that, um, sort of the collective relationship to in the world today to media. Um, it, I mean, it looks, like, it looks like people are really uh, more so than we think that the, the, they operate within the uh, framework. They they uh, have internalized authority in themselves, and uh, as soon as they hear anything uh, skeptical uh, about the narratives they hear, they feel personal about it. They, they get triggered. They have to defend um, uh, the defend the authority that's you know who, who they are standing with. So this is um, um, it's a striking that many people uh, do operate like that uh, for uh, many reasons, I guess. But um, uh, but but on the other hand, people who would be willing to uh, say that the uh, uh, why would they lie? Of course they lie because they have to perpetuate what they are doing, which is basically a feudal, feudalistic 
uh, hierarchy of uh, accumulation wealth and domination. So uh, <laughs> if you're having that kind of position, it's really, it, it sort of stops you. Why, why can't you see it? It's so obvious. Um, right. But people depend on this framework to uh, think, behave, and analyze things. So when, and when you do that, there will be many, many contradictions. And um, yeah. uh, so that's what we are thinking. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's it's extraordinary uh, situation, phenomenal. It's well, I think I think this identification with authority is um, is absolutely true, and people identify um, with what is on their screens. We've talked about you know this screen habituation, um, but they do they they identify with media, and it's a it's an you know. Uh, uh, a part of their lives people i know this is a little dated now because people do everything on computer screens and including streaming television and, and film but um you know in america they did a study of of how many hours a day televisions in people's homes were on and it was like you know 10 hours a day people never turned it off Jesus. it was the background noise um, of their life. It was a friend. People felt lonely. They felt less lonely, they said, when the television was on. Um, so, you know, it, 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 you don't want to feel that your friend is lying to you, I guess. <laughs> is, is well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's become in a way that, so I think Corey made a really good post about this, about trust. And um, people rely on that screen or whatever screen for, I mean, inherently, I think all people seek experience. And I think the infiltration of empire, so to speak, has been that they are able to now negotiate the, the relationship of the individual with itself. Hmm. And that is the depth of it, you know, like, so in the sense, like, it's not just that they are blindly trusting authority, they have also, I think largely people have been made to externalize their sense of agency and authority. Yeah. And that is why they, it is possible for this system to perpetuate itself. It's just like we are the fuel that, yeah. that helps it along. It's just that, that we, we, there, the habits and the desire that has been inculcated mm. through these mechanisms in people is what perpetuates it. And people, when once you've, once that kind of a structure has been able to give people their security of knowing what the world is. Nobody wants to let go of that because yeah. that gives them, it, it, it has replaced lived experience by secondhand knowledge. And that's how it's built in our education system. Absolutely. Is that right? Like it's just, you, you're only reading this text, but you never experience anything. You never go and meet those people that you're reading about. And that, well, it just kind of becomes the same thing into in in news, media, cinema, and the kind of the hyper reality of fiction, basically. You see, everything derivative now, right? I mean, because no. one of the things that we are driven. I was the big debate is: are is there a room, a cabal of people pulling the strings, or have we created a system whose own internal momentum? as was being said, detaches us from ourselves, mm. makes us look for external validation 
uh, makes us nervous if we're not part of some tribe uh, that uh, affirms even our sensibilities. Now, you, you wrote uh, your recent piece, John, um, which I enjoyed very much, Checkpoints on the Frontier of Desire. Uh, you quote um, the wonderful uh, Kundera book uh, about graphomania. And with your yeah. indulgence, I'd like to just quote a little segment that you quoted. And it talks about three preconditions. One, a high enough degree of general well-being to enable people to devote their energies to useless activities. Hmm. We have perfected that. Um, Arnold Toynbee once said that the final test of civilization would be the intelligent use of leisure. Well, we failed that hmm. completely. Uh, number two, it says here, an advanced state of social atomization and the resultant general feeling of the isolation of the individual. And then number three, the radical absence of significant social change in the internal development of the nation. And that kind of sums up what we've just all you know, said uh, in different ways. And you cap it off with a quote from Dr. F.T. Hunter, a psychiatric definition of graphomania, where he says, everything that doesn't convey a positive fact, the result of observation or of experience, which doesn't bring forth an idea, which do not materialize an image, or which isn't a personal artistic product, which doesn't affect the interior life and personality of the author, are in the domain of graphomania. Hmm. Derivative footnotes to popular or per pervading culture. Yeah. Um, Johan. Yeah, I, I think you all make really important remarks here. These are complex issues, of course, but I, I think central to them is this uh, issue what we, we've been talking about, how, how, how the rejection of central myths and central truths that we've uh, accepted creates a strong cognitive dissonance and so on. But I, I've been thinking uh, along these lines these last few days, uh, I was reflecting upon what originally brought me into into music and uh, and arts and, and all this. And I remember that what kind of pushed me in this direction was, was a kind of dread that I felt in relation to uh, what at least uh, seemed to me a kind of a kind of lifeless conformism of the of the the Swedish society, the secular society around me. And I, I remember feeling that if like people just submitted to social forms that were not of their own choosing, that they were just kind of play acting at a kind of counterfeit life, a, a false reality and its uh, ready-made roles for production and consumption cradle to grave, you know. And I think I, I, I think I see this same kind of submission in an emphasized form now in, in this uh, COVID cult that we find ourselves in a kind of kind of domestication around me where, where people surrender their autonomy and agency regarding both their bodies and their minds uh, and, and so on and this brings me back to these issues of of Stockholm syndrome and child abuse because I, I think the parallels here are striking and it recalls what you have just said here I how how, how trauma it creates submission and conformism as uh, the result. How, how 
the same thing you see in how, like victimized children who become strongly attached to their abusers and, and tend to see their abusers through rose-colored glasses and try to please them and organize their behavior so as to protect them from this threat. And I think this is central to, to the development in society around us right now. You know, it reminds me of, of um, something Malcolm X said uh, when he, he talked about the, the slave that was brought into the household, the so-called, in quotation marks, house nigger. And he said that that figure became deeply, profoundly attached to the master, the slave owner, the plantation owner, yeah. to the degree that he would speak um, in in uh, in plural, like you know, we sick boss. If he saw the master was not well, the question was, are we sick? Yeah. Um, and we're seeing something that's, yeah, I think not terribly different than that. There's an enormous identification with with power and and um, and with authority and and people. Sub what has shocked me this year, and and I and I, that's not hyperbole. I mean, I'm shocked um, that people are not much angrier than they are, are are not more afraid of the state are not more afraid of these measures i mean the i one of the fundamental rights you have as a human being uh and this came up recently in norway a group of lawyers um and educators but mostly from the judiciary and the legal profession signed a letter to the government um protesting the lockdowns, protesting the lack of debate, lack of transparency. Um, and one of the things they said is one of the fundamental rights um, that has been enshrined in any international agreement um, is the right to travel um, across borders anonymously. Yeah. Uh, and that that was revoked from the beginning without any debate, any discourse, uh, you know, with with no referendum, no town hall meetings, no uh, investigative committee, nothing. None of those things have materialized at all anywhere, so far as I know. Um, it was just uh, rule by decree. And yet people submitted to it without a whimper. I mean, they just submitted to it. Uh, you know, uh, seemingly without without any discomfort, any unease at all, and and this is something I find, um, as I say, shocking, but but inexplicable as well. So, um, yeah, Johan, did... uh, yeah, I, I can continue along that route, but maybe somebody else wants to step in, say something. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a little thought on what you're uh, talking about, because the, the recent piece I wrote, John, called Travesties, a lexicon of COVID lies, as if one needed more. Yeah, no, it's uh, a great piece, by the way. I'm going to link that when the podcast comes up, but please continue. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks. And I was moved to write it by Michael Yaden, who at one point said, uh, I will never get my freedoms back again. My life is over. So I'm going to march towards the guns. Fuck them. All of those bastards need to be at Nuremberg 2.0. And he was sort of, 
lamenting that he was the only ex big pharma person out there that he was aware of, who was kind of playing a, a role as whistleblower as to the sort of murky Mephistophelian underworld um, that operates. But when I wrote this piece, I was shocked of all the pieces at the number of people who wrote back. Uh, one person wrote back and said, I'm going to carry these words into battle. Um, that anger has taken so long uh, to congregate, to aggregate, and I'm still maybe insufficient, but I'm beginning to hear in pockets, some maybe just out of exhaustion. I think there was this belief that just shut up long enough and they'll get over this. Right. Yeah. Right. And you suddenly realize that no, they won't. Um, any more than previous Reichs um, or yeah. other um, forms of oppression have, uh, they only stop when you stop them. And um, so I think it's just been fascinating, uh, the gullibility, but also the sense of surely, surely. I, I had a met, I worked for a while with a guy called M. Scott Peck, who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. And Scotty, after 9-11, we were working together, coined a phrase called perverse grace. Mm -hmm. And he said that if people who perpetrated evil had some brains, they would have already taken over the world. <laughs> because they'd know where to stop. Yeah. And then they'd let us get used to that, and then they'd do the next bit. And whether it's Hitler with Poland or whether uh, it's cut off and start vaccinating kids with experimental gene therapy, um, eventually, I, I don't know that they've gone too far, but I hope, sure hope to God they have. But Perverse Grace said that if we're saved by anything, it's by power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely. Um, and if they would just stop, we'd all go along. Yeah. Maybe yeah, not all I, of us. yeah, I I hope I hope that's right. I mean, I sense I sense there is increasing skepticism, and and there I know when Boris Johnson announced you know that he was canceling summer essentially, um, there was a, a a pretty big outcry, and there will be protests about that. And uh, you know the the question is the question is on one level, and, and then, Johan, I want to get to you. Um, the question on one hand is, if if they tell you th this is true in Norway, if they say, no, you know, don't travel this summer, stay in Norway, we're advising you not to leave the country. Well, what happens if you do um, and you come back? What exactly are they going to do? I'm a, I'm a resident. I have a family here. I have three small children. Are they going to arrest me and put me in jail? That would rather defeat the purpose of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, send me to a quarantine hotel, perhaps. But what if I leave that hotel? Is there an armed guard that's going to keep me there? I sort of doubt it. I think <laughs> that probably nothing will happen if I drive to Sweden to get my tobacco and come back. I suspect nothing will happen um, because no law has been broken. I've I've violated a health advisory that's all but there is a state of emergency and god knows maybe they'll throw me in a dungeon a black site somewhere i don't know johan 
Yeah, yeah. I hope we'll see more of this uh, this healthy anger. I'm I'm not sure I'm seeing it where I live. I, I just wanted to ask you, Omar and and Varun, uh, about how if you could give us the picture about how the the vaccine is being marketed in your territories. Varun, you want to go first with India, and I can then do Sri Lanka. Yeah, sure. Uh, there is there have been hints of incentivizing it. Uh, there have been hints of connecting it to um, subsidies that the government gives people who are close to the poverty line and things like this. There have been, I've seen videos of uh, lobby groups from towns and cities entering villages and then getting um, beaten out literally with sticks saying that these people in the villages don't want any of that shit. Um, there is a massive amount of social media influencers who have been somehow um, either appropriated, paid, or they're just kind of automatically on board with the whole thing because of the scale of the other, like the larger campaign. And they have massive followings. They have massive followings, given that they are really in small towns and really don't have much to offer, but they are promoting the vaccination drive. They are really kind of uh, getting all their followers to get on that kind of bandwagon, you know. And it's not just, it's funny because you would imagine that <clears throat> it would be the other way around, you know, like that people who are watching mainstream news can analyze this and understand what the hell is happening. But it has, in fact, been the most illiterate people who understand what the fuck is going on and they don't want any of this, you know. And... Uh, I had, I, my mother lives in the hills and uh, I asked her and she's like in, nestled in this little kind of group of five villages and the skepticism about the shots is rising as the days go by, which is incredible. That is just incredible and to, to notice, you know, and that that is not being reported anywhere. They're reporting the positive numbers of how many inoculations they've managed to do. And, you know, those are the numbers that are being published. So people who are reading that are on board with the game in that, in, in that sense. That's how it's working here. It's just, yeah. Um, and oh, honestly, no, nobody's making the correlations that people have died because they took the shots. You know, yeah. like nobody's making that correlation. Yeah, that's um, a topic we should get to. Go ahead, Omar. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, just re uh, responding to Johan on that. Um, uh, first, just let me say nothing is as comically surreal as the U.S. version where we've had uh, the mayor of the city offering you hamburgers for free <laughs> to get vaccinated. Um, then we went on to lotteries. Uh, if you you know, can enter a lottery, if you get vaccinated, they'll buy you off. And I think perhaps the funniest one was dating apps are now being linked to with the suggestion that you can screw like bunnies if you're vaccinated. Uh, of course, there's no other illness you worry about when you fuck total strangers. Um, <laughs> it's only COVID. So let me leave that aside. Uh, my heritage is Pakistani. Um, and I will say just the sidebar, though you didn't ask about it, Johan, but the exact same situation Varun describes, my, uh, my mother um, um, tells me is the case where her family says they're all vaxxed, 
but the people who work for them refuse. Mm. They've even said, we'll get it for you. And they said, don't come near me. Nobody in my village, we're not dealing with that shit. Uh, so they're smarter. I mean, that same phenomenon that you're describing, uh, we find echoed uh, in Pakistan. Uh, in Sri Lanka, I don't think there's been a huge mania of marketing, but I think the fear campaign has worked a little too well. It's also confusing here because people got their first AstraZeneca shot and then they ran out of supplies. So they don't have enough to give them the second, but then the Chinese are willing to donate all their needs here to complete their transition into a vassal state. Um, but perhaps those vaccines, um, I don't know that they have anything in them or if they hurt anybody or help anybody, but Sri Lanka, there was such a throng of people wanting to get vaccinated, Johan, the other day that the authorities got worried about a vaccine cluster <laughs> developing, which would be a good segue to John's uh, thing about people dying from getting vaccinated, though here it would be about getting infected. So I don't think it's been a marketing campaign in Sri Lanka so much as at least, but I think a short-term campaign, especially those images of India um, that Varun explained were not exactly what they seemed, but Bangladesh was spiking for a while. Pakistan was, and there was a feeling in Sri Lanka that this is coming to a theater near you. Never quite has, but that was the, that was the fear. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, that, that, yeah, I, I, and yeah, I saw the ad for, you could get free french fries or whatever hamburger and french fries if you got vaccinated um uh but but a couple of very significant both nobel prize winners um whose names i don't have readily available here one is french um the guy who uh, discovered the hiv virus which is itself a contested um topic but never mind that he won the nobel prize um he came out in a interview um, I believe on French TV, but maybe it was just in print media um, that has not been translated into English anyway. Uh, and he said that, that the effects from the vaccination um, are, are not going to be felt immediately, but that there will be a massive death toll from, um, from this vaccine. Now, but that the, the people won't start dying for, for several years, um, that it will trigger a runaway antibody thing, something. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But, um, you know, needless to say, he's been pretty much erased uh, from mainstream media. <clears throat> and if you post anything um, by him, it, it gets removed, deplatformed, as they say. Uh, now, I don't know. You know, I have no idea how credible what he's saying is. The guy's a Nobel Prize winner. But then the second guy came out and said the same thing. Um, and then other people have said uh, that the vaccine is what is creating the variants. In fact, this guy said that as well. But a number of, of scientists have come forward and doctors and said that the variants are being manufactured by the vaccine itself, that this is the first time this experimental vaccine is used. And these people have no idea um, what might happen or what will likely happen um, because of it. Now, again, you know, I don't know. I have I can't even begin to speculate, but it is but it is 
certainly telling that these kinds of um, statements by, you know, I mean, this guy is is a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, so presumably he's, you know, he's he's not some crackpot tinfoil um, loony. Uh, he's a he's a mainstream guy and and with, you know, highly accredited and so forth. And yet, you know, and yet there's there's a complete media blackout. So the the question then turns back around on why that is. Why is there this level of censorship um, about the vaccine, about COVID itself? I can't think of a precedent uh, in which in which there has been such wholesale, naked, unapologetic censorship of dissenting opinion. Well, it's a unique situation. Um, yeah, Sarah, say again. It's a, it's a unique situation, I think. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, it's 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 breathtaking, and the thing is, I agree that there's growing dissent and opposition to the whole thing, and that I think people are getting exhausted. I think it was Omar said that that that, that just out of exhaustion, people wanted to end, and and you know, they're they're ready to do nearly anything. And they've been willing to do nearly anything, and yet it's not enough. Um, and I think it is starting to dawn on people that this is not ever going to go away. This is not ever going to end. You're going to need one vaccine after another vaccine after another vaccine, and these restrictions will not be lifted easily. They might be lifted temporarily, partially, but that's about it. Um, but what we see is that the, the, the demographic that is most visible in media, in film and television and social media and everything, is that white, educated 30 percent um, that Chomsky talked about many years ago, that this is the, the, these are the influencers, these are the people that advertising and marketing campaigns look to, and these are the people who have most um, enthusiastically embraced the idea of vaccination and wearing masks and social distancing and, you know, um, wearing a mask while you fuck your wife, all of these things, you know, that are, that are so patently insane. And yet, you know, we're seeing them um, um, just followed with, with great enthusiasm, as I say. And so that's the problem. We don't see the dissent. We don't see the numbers of people who um, who who disagree with all of this? Yeah, Hiroyuki. Well, I was just noticing that the uh, um, we do see the uh, imperial dynamics. Uh, Varun is saying uh, how things are uh, developing in India, and uh, we've seen that in the U.S. as well. Uh, the the murkiness of the information and a massive amount of uh, death coming from uh, uh, people stuck in nursing home and uh, limited option for treatments and all those uh, the, and the ventilation and all those things and um, um, so and and people visiting hospitals finding out that there are many things going on uh, um, so those things are really really uh, echoing uh, the uh, we see the uh, uh, dynamics of cultural imperialism uh, manifesting in uh, this way and the the development and in India is um, brought back to the states now people are saying look at India look at what's going on in India 
and uh, we're consuming that again. And um, and another thing is that the uh, uh, um, I I do notice the, uh, the difference in uh, reactions among the uh, previous class and. Uh, rest of the people. And uh, I think this is uh, coming from the fact that the uh, this is a war. This is a war against the people, uh, uh, just like the, uh, the war on drugs, war on uh, terror. Um, in those cases, um, the enemies were the minorities and uh, the terrorists, uh, so-called terrorists. And, uh, uh, but in this case, it's... Uh, the people, it's us. So I think the uh, the privileged class has bigger sense of uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, they would want to say that, um, okay, uh, there's something going on, but they will not attack us. They might attack minorities. They might attack people in Middle East, whatever. Um, so they have uh, this strong sense of denial, and that's manifest in. Uh, it's interesting. It's manifesting in uh, India and and uh, 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 other countries as, as well. It's um, um, so it's it's really uh, um, it's the, the 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 this big structure of feudalism is manifesting uh, itself, and we are seeing it from different angles well you know this is this is and i wish we had Corey here with us but um you know how this ties into the great reset and and the world economic forum and the green new deal and this kind of recalibrating of of capitalism that's going on um is is you know, is clearly none of that would be possible. We've talked about this several times on these podcasts, but but none of that would be possible without without this pandemic, without the lockdowns. And uh, I noticed that Wales is trying out uh, universal basic income now. So, you know, welcome to serfdom, Wales. Uh, but but that's going to be floated other places as well. I mean, this was a problem clearly pre-pandemic and and it's you know it's it's become uh, much worse because of the lockdowns um and and i think that that uh you know this is this becomes one of those problems when you're trying to talk to people you know back to that topic when 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 you you try to engage people on the subject of of the lockdowns the restrictions government policy and there's an enormous reluctance among most people to, to talk about it. And if you introduce anything to do with the reset and, and all the sort of global NGOs and these massive corporate interests that are now mining, deep sea mining and, and um, you know, there's just a whole myriad, a litany of, of um, projects underway. Uh, that has nothing to do, by the way, with, with environmental health. Uh, it's a, it, it is a complex topic. It's very complex to talk about. It's even complex to talk about on a podcast. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not sexy material um, for, for, um, for most people. And so, you know, the, the master narrative is, is, 
trotted out with, you know, hamburger advertisements and, and whatever with celebrities, um, all these various celebrity mouthpieces for both the vaccine, the lockdowns, wearing masks, you know, um, all the virtue signaling that goes along with all of this stuff. And it's very effective. It's very hard to, it's very hard to, to um, dent that, um, that wall of propaganda. It, it simply is. And, and meanwhile, like in Norway, this government, which is revealing itself increasingly as a very right-wing government, um, and yet they remain pretty popular. Uh, you know, there's a U.S. Um, submarine base being built in the pristine north. There's um, um, a, a military base, and I think a, an air, air base as well. All Anyway, there's tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers. Um, in the north, although you can't get very much information about it. And this is a country that has always prided itself on its environmentalism and keeping the Arctic region pristine and so forth and so on. And there have been some protests and some letters written, but, um, but nothing significant. And it's a small population, a small, rich country. Um, but it's when you look at the global situation, and I open this up to, to Omar, Varun, everybody, um, you know, Modi is is pretty much an open fascist in india uh you you have the eu and and uh you know the voices you know Juncker and ursula van der leyen and all of these people who who work out of brussels you have macron and merkel and boris johnson and you know they are all on the same page more or less and um the idea of a of a vaccine passport is is likely going to happen there unless there's a really organized resistance against it i think we're 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 going to see um at least the attempt of of to implement that and uh and and that's a topic probably worth touching on here yeah johan Yeah, I used to think that uh, key to much of this reluctance to criticize, I think, is the psychology of identification in play that we've talked a little about. And it also relates to the, the collective imagination and the myths and the symbolic structure I often talk about. You mentioned the, the slave that's brought into the household. And, and I'd like to emphasize we, we must uh, consider that this identification with abuse of authority it's going to have cognitive effects because in a situation where you have this abuser who can kill you at a whim and who has total control of your life and your resources, you're very likely to dissociate from this very unpleasant experience by portraying or framing the aggressor as your friend. I mean, it's, it's nicer to think you have a government that's benevolent and, and sometimes makes mistakes than to realize that you're dealing with this inhuman machine that wantonly kills and so on. And you have this, uh, the Scottish psychiatrist uh, Ronald Fairbairn, he spoke about this ego-splitting defense that's, uh, uh, that's activated in the abused child, so to say. And this is basically when the child uh, compartmentalizes negative experiences of the parent or the abuser uh, and then projects them upon something else and retains an image of this perfect parent or essentially good benefactor, which sometimes even goes into fantasy and, and derealization. And I think this correlates with, with people's insistence to always give the system the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. Right. 
And I think this also, of course, it relates to our cognitive reluctance to challenge core myths and beliefs. But but I think this this radical lack of skepticism is is truly extraordinary, because it's like you can't even ask these critical questions pertaining to the to the pandemic because people just shut down. Even even during the height of the the Spanish Inquisition, you could ask questions and expect well thought out answers from authorities, but that's that's not happening anymore. <laughs> Um, so can I just yeah, say something? I'll just add to what Johan was saying very quickly. Yeah. Was that I I read quite a few papers which talk about the result of extreme trauma to the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, and the incapability of um, of understanding the situation that one is in. Literally, like you cannot. You, like the brain is incapable of processing facts anymore. So like what he was saying of derealization and depersonalization, I think that creates this, what is called commonly in uh, trauma-informed work is called brain fog. It's like, a, it's, it is literally called that. And people don't have the capability of full cognitive power anymore at that discussion. Yeah. No, I agree. And I mean, I've written about this on a couple of blog posts and we've talked about it here. The the um, the loss of curiosity, the atrophy of the imagination, um, especially in the young um, uh, there. People don't read. Uh, literacy has eroded significantly. I mean, it's really pretty shocking sometimes to read even like the New York Times, Washington Post and see how grammatically. Um, troubled uh, these writers are and they're writing for flagship newspapers um, you know and I posted a thing on social media the other day because the New York Times I just happen I don't often read the New York Times but I feel it you know I feel duty bound to occasionally open it and look at it open it cyber wise and the the lead article um, for the internet edition was how to talk to your friends who are reluctant to get vaccinated. Mm. That was, that was number one. Then David Brooks had some op-ed about um, the death of wokeness, you know, and it was just confused gibberish by and large, 2000 words of, of incoherence. And then there was a guest essay, what used to be called op-eds is now a guest essay. And the guest essay was um, about the, that Israel faced an existential threat and that they were the real victim and so forth and so on. Um, that was the New York Times for that day. And so this, this, is, this, is, what, this is what people digest, you know, um, uh, along with MSNBC and BBC and, and CNN and all of these outlets that are not remotely about the news anymore, that are not remotely accurate or factual or, or um, yeah. um, anything other than, than advertisements for the this U.S. State Department mostly. But, but I wanted to touch on one other thing here too, and I don't want to leave the collective imagination discussion too completely because because i think it would be nice to discuss that a tiny bit more but um we skirted over the, this topic of vaccine deaths um and this was a significant part of this french nobel prize winners um interview in france Luke, uh, his name and, is luke montagne yes that's who it is thank you so, um, yeah omar so yes 
Um, again, just one thing uh, about Norway, which I saw today, which might amuse you. The Norwegian government announced that the risk of taking AstraZeneca was greater than the risk of COVID-19. And Twitter <laughs> platformed the Norwegian government uh, to show you that sovereign governments, even if they occasionally speak the truth, will be removed. And Twitter said at the bottom, we can tell you why most medical bodies believe vaccines are safe. So I thought you should know that, that at <laughs> least the government where you reside uh, made that statement. Yeah, there's been great ambivalence in Norway about the vaccine. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, in spite of the rest of their policies being pretty draconian, um, there is there is um, ambivalence. There's there's several splits. Twitter was not going to let them escape. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the execution. Um, now, in terms of the vaccine deaths, here, here's what I, I think is interesting anyway from uh, talking to people who um, are on the front lines. I told you last time about uh, Dr. McAuliffe, who um, actually treats COVID patients is only lost to, and along with people like Pierre Corey and others uh, have been talking about why don't we treat it? It's a treatable disease. Even the small percentage that get it uh, about 85% of them, if you treat them early uh, or more, make a recovery. And he pointed out that if any of these treatments, if hydroxychloroquine hadn't had that smear, uh, if they weren't slow walking ivermectin trials uh, and the WHO a researcher, Andrew Hill, wasn't curiously silenced a few months ago, I haven't heard anything from him. He's probably in an inquisitor's chamber uh, somewhere. <laughs> um, then you see the emergency. With, the thing to remember is they know that what they're doing is going to blow up at some point. They're indemnified. I mean, let's face it. Pfizer paid the largest fraud fine um, in, in history to the Justice Department. Moderna has never released another product before. It's a tech startup or it's a startup and suddenly they get flooded with money and authorizations. So that's who the world is hostage to, uh, all indemnified, which is not usually what you do when you have high degrees of confidence. So if these other treatments that are readily available came to the forefront, the emergency authorization would technically no longer apply since none of them are approved and this whole rotting edifice, and nobody's going to allow that to happen. Right. I mean, these folks are not going to give up without a fight unless they are hauled off somewhere to a Nuremberg trial. And so those, and the fact that the VAERS database in the U.S. now is not even recording adverse effects anymore, only those related to COVID reinfection. 4,000 deaths already, which is huge number more than other vaccines. So even those later deaths, probably so, but even the deaths to date are not a pretty picture. Um, you can say it's a very small fraction of those who get it, yes, but it's about 30 times that of any other vaccine. Right, and any other vaccine would have been pulled with 4,000 deaths. Well, um, about 200 deaths for the swine flu vaccine. Yeah. No, it's that. But see, here's an interesting thing. I mean, this touches on the media again. And, 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 and I ask this not 
in mock naivete, but I ask it sincerely. Um, the, the former middleweight champion Marvin Hagler died this year, and he died right after getting vaccinated. And the first tweet about Hagler's death, and I was a big Marvin Hagler fan, and, and um, the first tweet came from um, his former opponent, Tommy Hearns, and they had one of the most famous fights of all time. Um, and, and Hearns was a lifetime friend of Hagler's. Hearns tweeted, um, you know, uh, pray for marvelous Marvin Hagler, who's um, battling, um, he's in intensive care and he's battling the side effects of his vaccination. That was his tweet. That was that was removed, you know, within two hours. It was gone. But people had screenshots of it and it got disseminated pretty widely because people follow Tommy Hearns. People were upset. They heard Hagler was sick. And then, of course, Hagler died. He was in perfect health, by the way. Um, he was the picture of health. And uh, nobody saw this coming. And uh, Hearns disappeared from the media, was wouldn't answer questions. I mean, he was literally disappeared. I don't know where he is, but he hasn't spoken to the media since. Now, why was that? Why was that taken down? You know, um, uh, clearly. And who took it down? <laughs> you know, what are the mechanisms by which those things, those removals take place? Um, this is this is always the question. And this is dangerous it's hard to frame this without starting to sound like Alex Jones or something. Right. Um, because, because you, you, we, we have this lazy habit and I'm as guilty as anyone of using the word. They, they did this. They did, you know, well, who do you mean? They, um, the ruling class, you mean a little cabal of bankers in the, the tower in Geneva, you know, who is it? Um, or is it just the system, on, as Mar Omar suggested earlier, on autopilot? And these, you know, they the system knows the algorithms recognize something that needs to be removed, and it's removed. It's probably something like that. But there are still decisions made to control this narrative, and uh, to 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 control the. Um, the events and and things like death vaccine deaths have to be framed a certain way they have to be minimized they have to be removed from from um from media by and large and and they have to be explained there has to be however you know rudimentary there has to be some kind of cover story given to justify the removal um and there's enormous stigmatizing in all of this. I mean, people people are you know the the that that educated thirty percent we're talking about that that are the cheerleaders for this the vaccination and and all the protocols. Um, they're very happy to stigmatize any dissenting voices. I've never seen anything like it. People are terrified to be called a conspiracy theorist. People are terrified, to, you know, because they're referred to as dangerous. And you see celebrities say, I'm so angry, those of you who won't get vaccinated. You, we can't get our life back until you get vaccinated. I mean, so there is this strange migration of responsibility to, to people who just don't want to be vaccinated, you know, for a variety of reasons. 
um, you're suddenly dangerous. You're suddenly a threat to society. You're a leper, a social leper. Um, and, and I've never seen anything like this. And, and I have a hard time being articulate about the way in which it works. So if anyone has any comments on that, um, I've got, I've got one thing. If, uh, if I can, if I yes, can please, please. This. Um, there was something called the spars handbook that was printed out, uh, that takes for account the years 2025 to 2028. And this was, printed by the Department of Anthropology in Texas, Columbia University and John Hopkins Center. And that takes into account on page 75, I think, on the copy that I have, benefits of scenarios and simulations in preparing for disasters and epidemics. But their main interest is looking at social media challenges, opportunities for health and communication, essentially. Mm. So that means that it's infiltration of the echo chambers that are starting to form, which are incidentally, like it, it doesn't matter which side of the fence we are on, like our group here that we're talking about, which is essentially addressing the fear that we have that the quote unquote NWO great reset is going to be fulfilled, right? On the other side of the fence is the fear that quote, unquote, I am going to die or somebody that I love is going to die. Mm. And when there is, I think, I think what is happening, what is starting to happen now is that the, the strange and really gray, ambiguous nature of news, which is starting to flood on both sides of the fence, is going to start creating a lot of smaller groups that are easier to manage ideologically, yeah. mentally emotionally that's what's going to start beginning to happen and i think i think this kind of isolation is the intention i think that is the intention that people stay disconnected in this kind of manner because yeah. now nobody nobody is capable enough to have an extended extended conversation about anything mm. forget about the health crisis They're not, there is no there is no extended narrative conversation in any social setting over the last year everybody mm. is only just thankful that they are still alive and that they can still feed their families, you know? Like, so that, I think for me, is a very big, very big change that I have seen, which has happened. I think that's, um, I think that's a, a really, uh, really excellent um, observation and, yeah. and, um, and, and really accurate. And I, and I think that, I mean, we've kind of hinted at that before that, that, you know, this isolation discourages organizing, discourages grassroots organizing. Um, but I have noticed on a, on a perhaps a, a more mundane level, but I have noticed the almost the very subtle, almost subliminal um, behavior of people that they will recoil from you now um, if you're too close to them. Uh, the the sense of personal space has has um, has grown much larger. People feel if you're you know if you're within arm's distance now you're violating their space. Um, but it's subtle. It's unconscious little um, micro flinches that um, I sense in people that that um, fear fear closeness, uh, let alone intimacy of any sort, and. 
I can't imagine what this is doing to to dating among 20 year olds. Um, uh, and and maybe that that will disappear. Those effects will disappear at a certain point uh, if if people you know, if if the skepticism gains any momentum, has any traction and it might. Well, as I say, I think and we keep talking about this, but it's clearly a class divide um, everywhere. It, it, that's my sense. And yeah. um, uh, uh, I think I think the working class, for lack of a better word, uh, pretty much rejects the narrative. I think they're fed up. For one thing, they feel the, the 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 these policies affect them most directly and and cause the most harm, um, and and so they they want an end to it and they're angry about it and they don't trust government anyway. I mean, the other topic, and we're probably running out of time here, but but uh, you know, the other topic in the U.S. The, the other factor, rather, it's not a topic. The other factor is the Trump factor. That people, if you voice a certain kind of skepticism, you will be called, what are you, a Trump supporter? Um, and of course, Texas and Florida are Republican states. They have Republican governors. Um, and there is, there is a huge fear among the educated classes of being associated with, you know, uh, charismatic Christian Republicans or Trump supporters or, you know, the far right, the alt right, whatever you want to call it. It has had an enormous effect. And a lot of the sort of soft left publications, you know, that used to be left publications like Counterpunch and stuff is just is just an embarrassment now. Um, they're the people that said herd immunity is another way of saying mass murder. Um, you know, this is this is an outlet that's supposed to be left wing and 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 um, and dissenting. So uh, it's it's coloring all kinds of things. And I've noticed with this, the, the all the protests forming um, against Israel because of this latest aggression, uh, the uh, it's taking on a particular coloration and quality that I think is the result of of the pandemic and the, the policies of the pandemic. I can't articulate it. I can't even describe it. And maybe it, the, 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 the reality of it will emerge as time goes on. I don't know, but it's, it's having an effect. Johan. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have questions for, oh, sorry, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> No, I like that a dog has made an appearance on these podcasts. Um, okay. Uh, when Johan gets back, I'll let him finish. And then if anybody else has has any final thoughts. Um, I just got a, one thing that I'd like to add here. Yeah, please. <clears throat> when we look at, if, I mean, if we study how belief systems, mythologies have been appropriated by organized religion, and the detriment that that has done to society at large. And then we see the same process that happened with governments happening, essentially, how policies were then infiltrated by corporate houses and uh, managed that, that none of these systems really were helping society truly evolve 
it was just stagnating society in one way or the other. It was trying to control it so that the power structure could remain exactly the same way. And now I think we're living through the time when this same thing is happening to science. Interesting. Yeah. Well, medical science, yeah. Uh, John, if, uh, uh, while we're waiting, I'll also just say a final couple of words. I have to then um, love you and leave you, so to speak. You know, I think uh, we're kind of wrapping up here. Go ahead. But yeah, all I was going to say is that um, while I think indeed we are fragmenting, I wouldn't write perverse grace off completely because what's also happening is that in Kuwait, coming together, you were talking about people who indeed demonized each other. As I told you, Alex Berenson saying he's shocked that he and Naomi Wolf agree. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Sullivan, uh, you could switch one paragraph uh, and they could write uh, a harmonious essay. So it's making for strange bedfellows indeed. Mm. Now, whether that endures beyond the crisis, uh, no, no idea um, you know, whether that'll be the case or not. Um, I, I think the only other thing that's really important uh, right now is that uh, I think what Varun said is, is very true. I mean, uh, Fritjof Capra once said something like, you start with a spiritual experience, then you create a bureaucracy around it. And then the bureaucracy dedicates itself to making sure you never have a spiritual experience again. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what happens. And what's happening now uh, with medical science is that, is that it is invalidating itself and becoming again a mouthpiece for vested interests. And so people believing what they hear. I mean, again, coming back to Dr. McCullough, he said, for God's sake, you treat patients. And if you have an off-label use for things like ivermectin or whatever, you just use them. You don't let somebody suffer. He said that the thing that I've always been taught as a doctor is finally use your best judgment. And he said, I am shocked that to this day, there's no Johns Hopkins protocol for treating COVID, no Harvard protocol for treating COVID. He said, it is the biggest example of medical malpractice I've ever seen, which just goes to the point being made. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Johan? Yeah, I think you're, you're correct, Varun, regarding how science is being transformed into myth, or rather that the science's function as a myth is, uh, is growing and, and uh, imposing itself uh, upon the, the other functions of it. But uh, I was hoping to ask both you and, and Omar something regarding... Uh, if you could just give give us the the quick take on how you would address this situation from your own expertise and perspectives, uh, let's say within the framework of aesthetic resistance as a as an idea. Omar, you want to go ahead this time first, please. Go on. <laughs> um, this and just to make sure, Johan, I'm answering the right question. When you say address this. Do you mean that sort of media corruption or the larger uh, ideological virus? Sorry? Feel free to pick one. I mean, the, the, the general situation we find ourselves in, you can characterize that how you want to. Well, my background, uh, primarily I'm an organizational consultant. I'm a crisis consultant. And then funnily enough, just so you theater guys and artists don't feel 
totally disenchanted with me. Uh, I, I was for a long time uh, involved with the Shaw Festival in Canada, the only theater festival devoted to George Bernard Shaw and his contemporaries. Um, and the reason I bring up Shaw is that he wrote something called Heartbreak House, which I'm doing an essay on, uh, and we're right back there again. And Shaw was of the belief that you have to use not only facts, but you have to use irony, you have to use parody, you have to use comedy to some extent as shock therapy. That you have to offer truths sometimes uh, dramatically presented or presented in a new mythology, perhaps uh, appropriating what Varun was saying. But, but my short answer is that it almost has to be small acts of activism. I, I don't think there, uh, I mean, there's a pervasive answer uh, and it's, it's going to have to be, you know, that uh, I hate to finish with a pop psychological example, but many of you will have heard the starfish story of the fellow walking on the beach. There's all these starfish and he throws one in the water, throws another one and somebody says, man, don't you know that's hopeless? You can't make a difference. He picks one up, throws one out, and said, "Made a difference to that one." Yeah, no, but and, and I, but I agree. You know, I think people have to have the small acts of resistance, um, small acts of personal integrity matter, and people have to talk. People have to speak up. Um, Varun, yeah. Um, I so from my, I think from my understanding, what has happened is that. Um, the individual in modern industrial civilization is disconnected from the repercussion of its action. The individual does not understand the repercussion of its action in international society. And the in the sense that I think society functions silently through habits and actions and our behavior. And it's that point that has to be, I think, highlighted for all of us everywhere is that, you know, I think empire in that sense, or like all of these structures are in every single facet of our life. And if we had to dismantle the whole thing, then we really need to understand how we are part of it. If, for example, like, I mean, every single phone that anybody buys anywhere, you know, like uh, that's, or a laptop or a car and the, the desire to have this, it, it mobilizes or it has already mobilized billions of people around the world. And that is what I think is the, the, the human interconnectivity is what has been imperialized entirely. That we depend on each other. That is what empire has imperialized. They have taken over that aspect of existence entirely. And once we realize this, then we can, I think, make steps even if slowly and incrementally to to kind of drain that poison from all our lives slowly and it'll take time but i think we need to understand that we are all connected to the war we are all connected to the famine we're all connected to the to the genocide and the wars which are which we are seeing right now you know and that's that understanding is something that is is also neutralized in the sense that the self-responsibility to society is neutralized to a large extent in all our education systems. Because once we have been through those hoops of 
understanding and imbibing secondhand knowledge, once we get out of that, our identities are validated as, quote unquote, doing no harm and doing no wrong in society. The only place that we have now is functionally to economy. That's it. Like to economy and progress of the economic ideal of, of the empire. So that, I think that's a very intricate kind of, very intricate argument that, that needs a lot more discussion. But I think that, that's where it's at for me. Um, I was going to say something, but I think we'll end on that because I think, I think that was wonderfully put. And um, I, somebody just sent me a text actually with a whole list of, of um, very important prestigious doctors uh, at, at different institutions globally who are coming out um, and calling in question all of the all of the COVID policies by the government. Um, Better late than never. But I'll I'll maybe post a link to it. I mean, they're coming out more and more. The 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 narrative is crumbling. Anyway, I want to thank you all um, very much. I'm really glad uh, to have you, Varun and Omar, Johan, as always, Hiroyuki. Uh, this was great and. Um, and the link will be up soon. I will send it to all of you. And, uh, and hopefully next time we have Corey back. And, um, and I'll talk to you all soon then, yeah? Yeah, thank you, John.